From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Clancy Balin, and this is Mental Episode 4, Catharsis. Over the past four weeks, we've showcased student stories that have turned the narrative back into our own heads. We've covered phobias, the power of neurodivergence, and how our brains can trick us into thinking we're in control. Now, for our final episode in the series, we'd like to end things on a different note. Brains are messy, complicated things, but we can make them work for us, not against us. This week, in collaboration with the Science Gallery Melbourne and All the Best, we look at catharsis and healing. Just a heads up, we'll be talking about trauma and mental illness, so do take care while listening. To kick things off, we have a story by Anthony Masico Deveri about how dogs unlock the cuddle chemicals in our brains and what this means for the future of emotional support animals. So I'm Kate. I am a mum to uh, seven-year-old Noah. Noah um, was diagnosed with autism when he was two and a half or around two. A few years ago, Kate was scrolling through Facebook and came across a video of a puppy But this wasn't your average puppy video. This one was being trained to assist children with autism. I didn't know anybody that had an assistance dog. I didn't know anything about it. So she did her research and decided to apply for a dog with Assistance Dogs Australia. After a long, drawn-out process, her family was gifted a specially trained Labrador named Claudia. Said once before, and I'll say it a thousand times, she's like sunshine on a rainy day. You know, she's beautiful with him. When he's withdrawn and overwhelmed, he often lies on his stomach on the floor and she will just go up and lie beside him and eventually his hand will come out and start patting her. Then she'll put some body pressure on him, you know, and I actually feel okay that the two of them are together. I don't feel like he's alone in some place. You know, I know he's okay because she's there. It was clear that Claudia had made a huge difference to their lives, but I was also curious to know how she felt about emotional support animals. Emotional support animals are a relatively new alternative to specially trained and costly assistance dogs, and they're growing in popularity. There are rules that are very strict. You know, we went for an uh, assistant dog over an emotional support dog because Noah's difficulties are in public. Emotional support animals aren't recognised under Australian law, so they don't have the full public access rights that assistance dogs do. But this hasn't stopped people from trying. I can see how dogs help. I understand people completely, but I think that there's correct process to go through. And if you have a dog that isn't trained in the right way and it causes a drama in a restaurant or in a shop, that puts a negative light on all those assistance dogs because that person in the shop might not understand the difference. Does that make sense? It does make sense. But the thing is, assistance dogs aren't cheap. Each one is worth about $40,000. Some organisations, like Assistance Dogs Australia, do give them away for free. But as their CEO, Richard Lord, told me, without government support, they're struggling to meet the demand. We'd be one of the biggest assistance dog organisations in Australia and we're putting out about 40 dogs a year, but we've got a two-year waiting list on on each of our areas. So uh, for many people, waiting two years is too long. I couldn't help but think that maybe some people just don't have the money or the patience to navigate the system. Maybe not everyone who calls their pet an emotional support animal is motivated by convenience. Maybe some people really do rely on their pets for psychological support. My name's Kate Foley and I'm 27 years old and this is my dog Ziggy. He's a Corgi cross Kelpie. Ziggy, come up here. 
I've been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety and depression due to probably 10 years of emotional, physical and financial abuse from my older brother who was an ice addict and he helps me really with being home alone or being by myself. I can sometimes have attacks where I freak out and Ziggy will jump up onto me, um, start licking my face start licking my hands, he'll bark at me um, quite loudly, like really intense, which will kind of like snap me out of it. Kate told me that she'd considered getting an assistance dog or even having her own dog specially trained, but she was overwhelmed by the process and the costs. She's also not sure if she needs an assistance dog. Her dog seems to have an almost innate ability to support her. She doesn't need or expect him to be with her at all times. But when she's having a bad day, it really does help. I think the biggest thing that I've struggled with is taking him on public transport or in uh, car services. I have to pre-warn and tell the driver my situation and they can have a very flippant response, either caring and understanding or absolutely not. And sometimes I've been waiting out in the cold for an hour trying to get a, a proper Uber, which... Obviously, like I mentioned, I'm quite scared to be alone, so it doesn't really help me at all. So what's the solution? Well, making assistance dogs more accessible is a good place to start. But also, if emotional support dogs were recognised under law, and those laws required owners to prove that their dogs can behave appropriately in public, then maybe assistance dogs and emotional support animals can coexist. Because now that we understand the therapeutic value of dogs, shouldn't we make it easier for more people to access their support? That was by Anthony Masakotaveri. Here in Melbourne, Australia, our winters seem to drag on forever. Cold, dreary days make it hard to get out of bed. But what's the science behind this phenomenon? Our reporter Stephanie Zhang investigates how our wintertime sadness might actually be caused by SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. Basically in the morning, I wouldn't want to wake up. It just doesn't make sense, you know? It's just completely dark everywhere. My friend Sammy moved to Iceland recently. She's there doing her PhD, studying salmon, and has just gone through her first Icelandic winter. Up there, days are uncomfortably short. The sun rises at noon and sets at around four. So I moved to Iceland in, like, January. And then I remember back then that it was quite crazy. It's just that you wake up in the dark and then I would just go to work in the dark. And then when I come back from work, it would still be the dark. But spring is settling in for her now. I feel a little jealous because as temperatures drop here in Melbourne, I'm bracing myself for the same drop in my mood that will inevitably occur. A cold wind returned to Melbourne today. Cold front pushed through the southeast over the last few days. quickly moving in. Every winter in Melbourne is such a drastic change. Though I've lived here for almost six years now, every year around May, without fail, I start to really struggle to get out of bed. Hitting snooze five or six times becomes the default, and I stop feeling the motivation to do anything. It's ironic because this, feeling a particularly strong bout of depression in the winter months, is called Seasonal Affective Disorder. Its acronym is SAD, so SAD for short. 
It turns out that SAD, which is categorized as a type of depression, is common in the rest of the world, but quite rare in Australia. But so many of my friends here in Melbourne have SAD, and the symptoms are especially apparent for friends who have moved here from sunnier states. Usually, usually about, I'd say like about May, I start feeling really flat. It causes me to reflect on my existence as a whole. That's Emily, who moved to Melbourne from Queensland eight years ago for uni. My friend Eve says she has similar symptoms. She moved from Western Australia five years ago. From probably about mid to late autumn every year, I start kind of experiencing a lot of lethargy, so harder to wake up in the mornings and um, like less motivation to go about my daily tasks. In the past, I've just allowed myself to be a bit of a lump once winter hits, but I think this year I'll maybe try a little harder to keep the sadness at bay. So I asked Sammy how she coped. My colleague recommended me to try using like vitamin D supplements. I kind of look forward to taking my vitamin D supplements in the morning because it's just kind of like you feel better afterwards. So that's one thing I can add to my daily routine. My supplement bottle says that many Australians do not achieve sufficient vitamin D levels due to lack of sun exposure, and that vitamin D can help maintain strong bones and support muscle function. Sounds good. What else? Also, just schedule, like, I don't know, once a day or, like, a few times a week that you just need to get out of the house. Like, maybe going to the library just during a set time. Another method I've heard a lot about is bright light therapy. When you can't get outside, count on us to bring daylight indoors. Keep life- Companies are making lights to mimic the effects of the sun because light helps your brain make more serotonin. That's a hormone that can affect mood, so sitting in front of a light box for around 30 minutes a day can be effective. Sammy's never tried it, but Eve's had a good run with her therapy light. She spends around an hour with it each day. And that helps me just like I can kind of think about like being warm or being on a beach somewhere. I've been tentatively looking up lightbox options online, but for the past few weeks I've mainly been trying to make sure I take my vitamin D supplements daily and get outside as frequently as I can. It's been tough, especially with the risk of the coronavirus still lingering, But getting moving again after hours of sitting at a desk always feels surprisingly good. I've found that soaking up the sun when the weather allows and being outside really grounds me and reminds me of my own physical existence. It's simple, but it works. Melbourne winters are so long and dreary, but being aware of my sad is a reminder that this isn't forever and soon we'll get those beautiful Melbourne spring days. And connecting with my friends going through the same thing has made me feel so much less alone in the dark. I've been thinking a lot about what Emily said to me. I think you do have to acknowledge that we are just like creatures living on a planet. We're not more complex. We are just creatures looking at the sun. And that's, that's all we can do. Reporting there by Stephanie Zhang. Loss is something that everyone deals with at some stage. For the final story in our mental season, reporter Sean Goodwin deals with loss, grief, and ultimately healing. I'm at Long Reef Point in Sydney. I often come here to just sit and watch the ocean and think about my brother Liam. 
We lost Liam at the end of 2017 and scattered his ashes here by the cliff. A month and a half after that, my friend Andy lost her dad, and within that year, another best friend, Juliet, lost her mum. They say bad things happen in threes. Liam, Raymond, Jenny. We were all 21 at the time, and we had no idea what the grieving process looked like, and neither did the people around us. Because of that, there were a lot of moments along the way where you just can't help but laugh. Here's Juliet. The usual reaction is just avoidance. I went to like a New Year's party shortly afterwards and no one talked to me about the fact that I had just lost my mum and it was just really awkward. People wouldn't ask me questions like what have you been up to this week or how have you been <laughs> like regular small talk questions yeah. and I think that they just would were worried that I'd say like oh I'm pretty shit because my mum died. Yeah what do you think Andy? Like it's also like I'm probably already a level of sad so it's not like you bringing it up is gonna make it worse it's just a fact of life. So in those moments why do you think people don't want to bring it up? It's often discomfort on the side of the person just not knowing how to approach the subject and that's not particularly their fault I think it's just a product of the society that we currently live in and we're not really taught how to have these difficult or challenging conversations. Were there any other areas that you thought were a bit confusing for the people our age who hadn't gone through this? I think the biggest thing about people not being able to understand is the timing of how people react to this. So I think poor timing is always the case. But then there's a misconception that people think that things get get easier with time and, you know, like... Time heals all. all wounds. It's like, nah, they don't come back. (laughs) 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 I think in some ways for me it was harder because, I mean, when he just died, I'd seen Liam the day before. Six months down the track, things hurt really differently because... I hadn't seen him for six months, right? What did you guys feel about that? Did you feel like people tried to move on and you you weren't experiencing any sense of moving on? Yeah, it it did feel like the world had moved on around me and I was still kind of feeling this pain and not really feeling like it was appropriate anymore to have bad days. And, you know, is it appropriate to tell my friends, like, I don't really want to hang out today. I'm just feeling really sad. How will they respond? Are they over it? Our friend Leia was one of the people on the other side of this. Was there any times that you felt like, oh, I don't know what to do here? I, I feel that constantly. And I think that's also because, like, you don't think about your young friends kind of dealing with this stuff. Mm. Well, I remember I called my mum and she was like, you just need to be a good friend. I kind, of, I kind of thought about it and I think what being a good friend in these situations is just being receptive to what the other person needs as opposed to saying what you want to say. Sometimes it is just about giving them an opportunity to speak, not into the void, you know, to someone else. It just matters that I'm sitting there with a beer in my hand going, yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the bad. What do you guys think are the good ways in which people supported you? What really made a big difference was knowing that my friends were supporting me, you know, a long time after the immediate loss and just letting me go through the motions of grief. I had a situation with one of my best friends who were in the car and I just kind of like snapped at her and I was like, enough, like I'm just so freaking angry. Like I just don't want to 
feel like this all the time. And she was like, you're allowed to feel like this, Jules. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to yell. And then I was like, yeah, I am allowed to yell. I could yell right now. I could scream. I could scream in this car. I scream at all these pedestrians. Like I'm allowed to feel this way. (laughs) I think a really big deal for me was all of my friends reading me really well without me realizing it so much. And it wasn't like a pointed thing being like, oh, come over because I'm worried about you because your dad died. It was like a, oh, I'm just going to come over. Doesn't matter what for, doesn't matter why, doesn't matter when. I'm just going to come over and we can just be wherever you need to be. Going through this as a three is a tragic coincidence. But I think we've all been grateful in some way that we've been able to understand each other and we've been able to help the people around us understand as well. That story was by Sean Goodwin. This has been our final episode of Mental. The series has been produced in collaboration with the Science Gallery Melbourne and All the Best. You heard our reporters Anthony Masakotaveri, Stephanie Zhang and Sean Goodwin. And of course, we have to thank our executive producer, Louisa Lim. Massive thank you also to our all the best mentors, Jordan Fennell, Eugenia Zubchenko, Britta Jorgensen and Lee Casey, as well as Mel Chun. We'd also like to offer special thanks to Rose Hiscock, Ryan Jeffries, Tilly Bolain, Susie Anderson, Heather Gaunt and everyone at the Science Gallery for their continued support. Next week, Hulk Pressure Part 1. Our reporter Harry Sekulich takes a look at sports supplements and male body image. The yarn is produced at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. If you like the show and you want to support us, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot. And it's the best way to get the show out there. See you next week.